This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. Today we're having a conversation with Tim Stoop, President and Board Chair of the International Association of Fire Chiefs, IFC. Here at Fire Rescue One, we are very proud to serve as the IFC's official media partner. Chief Steubing is also Fire Chief of the Halifax Regional Fire and Emergency Services in Nova Scotia, Canada. Chief Steubing has more than 35 years of experience in fire and EMS, which we'll dive into in a bit uh, in, as part of our conversation. Chief, welcome to the Side Alpha podcast. Thank you so much, Chief. Such an honor to be with you here today. Looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. It's been uh, a, a rough time, and we're going to get into some of those rough times. But just for a second, uh, I want to uh, talk about this point of uh, the word international. I, I think sometimes we throw around the international title for organizations without a lot of thought. Uh, but there's some significance here. Uh, and, you know, from my personal interactions with the IFC, I can attest to the true international impact and international membership of the IFC. Uh, certainly, uh, your interactions from Canada are representative of that. However, the attendance of you know fire chiefs from Europe, Asia, South America, Africa, and and all over North America at the IFC conferences that I've attended has been very impactful for me personally. Recognizing that you're the first IFC president in a long time that's not been based in the United States, does that create a different pressure or perspective for you to the responsibilities of the president? That's certainly a good question. It's been almost four decades since there's been somebody from outside the U.S. in this role, Uh, but I'm certainly not the first. I believe I'm the eighth Canadian, and there was actually a chief officer from Puerto Rico and the Netherlands, so even broader than North America. But certainly, I think, you know, any year that would be difficult, but there might be some value in what's going on with COVID with many virtual meetings. It's been easier to meet with levels of government virtually because that's exactly how they've been doing business. But when I was originally approached for the role, certainly that was a question I asked myself whether, you know, people had asked me if I would consider the role and I had really kind of tried to wrap my head around that because uh, similar to the Canadian division of the IFC, the the IFC itself does a lot of government advocacy work. So how does a non-American do that government advocacy work for the United States? So certainly I think we've been able to do that, A, because of the virtual environment, but also because we have many members that sure. can participate in some of those testimonies and uh, sessions to provide that U.S. perspective. But it's also valuable when you have, uh, I think, when you, you know, I was a biased opinion, obviously, but when you have a chief from another country who says this is not just a U.S. challenge, right? So I think it adds credibility to the depth and breadth of the issue that you're talking about, depending on the subject, obviously. Uh, But we have a lot of content experts and people in different geographies in this membership and many times during covid when challenge challenges have been experienced with travel i've been able to reach out to our first or second vice president or a committee chair or section chair uh, or division president or whoever uh, who's a member of our organization to say can you participate with me in a session to meet with our government on advocacy on this particular issue, whether that's broadband, uh, next generation 911, Z access, uh, whatever that issue is of the day. Uh, But certainly it took me a little bit of time to get my head around uh, how I would be perceived in that role as an international fire chief. Sure, yeah, no, and I can understand that. It, uh, you know, I can tell you from participating in the past with some of the IFC initiatives, in my role in Washington or in the Washington DC area, having those face-to-face meetings uh, can be critical uh, and and can be very impactful. But in this COVID environment, the virtual uh, 
um, opportunities, while maybe not quite as impactful, I think open up a lot more advocacy. So I think that uh, you know your your analysis is good. That uh, um, you know we're going to talk about COVID here in just a second, but having been in that COVID environment and taking on this role, uh, probably being in the COVID environment aided you in your transition because the virtual reality of having you know the distance was going to be a reality whether travel was restricted or not, right? So. Uh, exactly. So my predecessors, the two presidents before me, both had the same challenges for travel, and they're from the U.S. Yeah. The other thing I would kind of add to my comments earlier, uh, although you know the presidency here is a one-year term, uh, I had been on the Canadian division, or you know the Canadian Association of Fire Chiefs, which is the Canadian division of the IFC. They're one and the same. I was on the board for many, many years there and was very engaged in government advocacy work there. Sure. So the good news is I had experience at that national advocacy level meeting with the federal government in the Canadian in the Canadian world. So I was comfortable with those kind of high level meetings and conversations and how to frame those conversations with uh, the different levels of government. And certainly we've already talked about the kind of challenges with travel and that virtual yeah. environment, which might have actually made that easier, not yeah, right? Yeah, I think that transition probably was. So, you know, talking about COVID, uh, the, the pandemic certainly has been crazy for all of us, and that is literally worldwide, all of us. Uh, the IFC has been front and center, keeping fire chiefs engaged. I know uh, the emails keeping me informed of what policies and um, you know issues are out there that are specific that IFC either is working on advocacy for or just keeping people informed that has been coming on a continuous basis. What what has it been like stepping into the presidency in the midst of that pandemic, uh, specific to the kind of message that you would be giving or want to give firefighters to continue to slog through this because. And, and again, you know, the direction of my question is, if you took the presidency at a time when um, we weren't in COVID, you'd probably have a different mindset of message. So, no, it's a great question. Um, you know, I don't know if you had a chance to see my remarks when I first took office uh, being sworn in virtually this year. But one of the things I said is, you, you know, my personal belief is you have a fire chief because you have a fire department. It's not the other way around. So what I mean by that is my position as the fire chief and that of our leadership team is to support our firefighters in achieving their mission. And I feel exactly the same way as the president. Uh, my role as the president for a one year term is to sometimes be the voice of the strength of our organization. And the strength of our organization is the members that make up the organization and our structure, our sections, our divisions, our committees, our task force, our staff, and our boards, that is where our collective knowledge and true uh, power comes from. So, yes, it's been a difficult time to come into this role, but first of all, you know, you rotate through the chairs starting at second vice president and first vice president. And in addition to those elected officer positions, um, I also sat as the Canadian division director on the board for many years and on the executive committee, which is, you know, a position on the executive committee with the treasurers and the past president to president, first and uh, second vice presidents that is elected by the other board members. So the section and division representatives on the board elect one of their uh individual positions to sit on the executive committee so i had served in that role for a few years being before being asked to take on the second vice president's role when somebody couldn't fulfill that role so mm -hmm. the learning curve my point of that is the learning curve was not as steep as somebody kind of being sworn in as a second vice president um so i was able to transition into this role having served many years on the executive committee then i would also say that you know while i was actually a second vice president uh 
I was asked by Chief Ludwig, who was the president at the time, if I would consider sitting on the task force that was created for COVID-19 to represent the international members on that committee. So stepping into this role, I had already been working closely with the COVID-19 task force and was kind of at ground zero in uncovering that information that was coming through the many, many partners and stakeholders that we had on that committee, including labor and medical experts and chief officers from around the world, quite honestly, learning from each other and being able to disseminate that information to our leadership. So I was fairly fortunate to be in the right place at the right time in particular this topic. But I also, you know, spend time, you know, in my career as a paramedic. Uh, clinically, my position was uh, a critical care flight paramedic. That's the highest position I served in as, uh, as a clinician and went through two pandemic scares. Well, actually three, the H1N1, which many people might remember, uh, had a small Ebola scare when I was in Winnipeg as a deputy chief. Uh, and in charge of uh, fire and EMS uh, responsibilities there, uh, but also SARS when I was kind of working ground zero as a critical care flight paramedic and SARS went through Toronto. So the, I had comfort level with pandemics as a clinician, as a clinician, but certainly this is unique. Every pandemic is unique, but yeah certainly understand it from a pandemic planning and protect your workers and minimize the potential for spread from a emergency management uh, kind of lens because I've also been in charge of emergency management for probably 14, 15 years or so. Okay, so let's uh, continuing on that track. Let's talk about the 64,000 pound elephant in the room. Uh, in August, uh, you know, the IFC released a statement uh, encouraging fire chiefs to advocate for the mandatory FDA-approved COVID-19 vaccination, uh, vaccinations for their fire and EMS personnel. They encouraged it. Now, the statement uh, acknowledges, um, you know, obviously the qualified medical or religious exemptions like any would. Um, but the, the, you know, the key here is the line from the statement. And uh, the key to me, at least, is the line from the statement. And it's that it says a vaccination ensures that our personnel do no harm to those who call upon us for emergency services. So we all know that vaccine mandates have been controversial and frankly polarizing for many. Um, what do you say to the firefighters and EMS providers and, and to the fire chiefs who are struggling with this uh, that maybe are resisting obtaining the vaccine? Certainly a uh, great question and certainly we could probably talk for hours about this and you yes. realize that, you know, it is a polarizing and quite honestly political issue uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the challenge that the association has is we need to provide advice to our membership that is based on the best information we have. And certainly, you know, there's a lot of different information sources, some would call them misinformation, but I guess it depends on what side of the coin you're looking at um, as far as information about the efficacy of vaccines and particularly this vaccine. So the IFC prior to this issue had been advocating for our firefighters to get appropriate PPE, to be at the front of the line for testing, to protect our workers. And as the vaccine became available and the information that was shared with us from official channels that you know we were comfortable with interpreting it became very clear that to the board that the right advice to our membership and this was unanimous by our board was not just certainly my message it was unanimous from our board is the best advice we could give chief officers which are employers for the most part uh to keep their workers safe and our clients and customers safe was to get the vaccine early we had heard 
many, you know, accounts of firefighters and paramedics and first responders dying with COVID who became effect, infected on the job. Uh, we're dealing with, you know, patients who might be immune compromised. So certainly, you know, exposing them to the virus would not be doing something that's in the best interest of the patients and clients that we're asked to provide service for. But I think the other lens that needs to be considered is a workplace health and safety lens. So, you know, as an employer, I can tell you that I'm obligated under our legislation here, and it was not just our legislation, we'd looked at many pieces of legislation and requirements, but I can just kind of speak to my own perspective on this front. Uh, I'm required as an employer to take all due diligence measures to keep our firefighters safe. So, you know, obviously that would normally include SCBA and turnout gear and training, all the stuff that goes along with that. But when official, federal, state, provincial, doesn't matter where your official communication channels are coming from, the vast majority of them are telling you vaccinations are the best way to protect your workforce. Then as an employer, if something happens after the fact, we're going to have to be answering to why we did not do that for our workers, not just our customers, but our but our firefighters. Yeah. And certainly the IFF as well, their president has talked about the efficacy of the vaccines. So yes, it is a polarizing and a political issue. And certainly you need to come down on one side or the other when you give advice to your membership, but it is advice, right? Ultimately, mm -hmm. our members make their own decisions we're trying to provide them information that's based on the best information that we have providing life is based on the best information we have yeah absolutely and and like you said it's a key to that discussion it is advice at the end of the day uh, you know these are personal decisions that the uh, folks have to make and the un probably most unfortunate part of the whole discussion is the politics that has entered into not only the discussion of hiring and firing and but just the, the down and dirty politics on the station floors that uh, sometimes gets our people in trouble. So um, I hope that they take the advice. I hope they uh, understand that not only the IFC, but lots of other organizations are uh, trying to use the best advice that they have to uh, steer folks in the right direction. At, at the end of the day, uh, you know, what's the old saying? You, you know, you can lead the horse to the water, but you can't make them drink it. So, well, uh, and I think I think you brought up a really important point there, and maybe you didn't kind of realize how important it is when you said it, but uh, certainly that's been something that we've been doing here. As people start to get their head around this issue, you know there's going to be conversations at the stations. Mm -hmm. So what we reminded people is, you know, yes, you might be on one side of this issue or the other, um, but at the end of the day, those conversations need to remain respectful. So. Yeah. Whether you're talking about religion or politics or sexual orientation, or in this case, vaccinations, your conversation should always be respectful and understand that while you might be passionate about it one way, somebody might be passionate about it another way. So being able to have those respectful conversations will help people maybe see something from a different perspective that they haven't considered in the past. Uh, but as employers, you know, certainly one of our obligations is to keep our workers safe and to do take all due diligence to make sure that is the case. Absolutely. Good, good perspective. Let's switch gears a bit. You mentioned uh, your service as a, a paramedic, your, your clinician service, uh, and I want to talk about that just for a bit. Uh, you did begin as a, a paramedic uh, and you've worked in all types of EMS services. Uh, I say all types, you know, but uh, it serves as a critical care flight paramedic on uh, I have bandage one in Toronto um, and as the education research program manager for the Hamilton Health Service. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Hamilton Health Sciences Base Hospital. Can you share a bit about your EMS career and how that has prepared you for uh, roles that you had up to now, but certainly now this role and moving forward in a fire and EMS service? 
Sure. So certainly, you know, it's not probably that atypical um, that many people start their career in EMS uh, and then transition into fire. Uh, Fire-based EMS is not very common in Canada, but I have had a chance to work in a few. Uh, one of the very few services that actually has that model, but I started it. So EMS typically in Canada is a third emergency service, just mm -hmm. like some firearms. So I started off as a paramedic in a standalone EMS service, started off as a BLS provider, what we call in this country a primary care paramedic. So our levels of paramedicine are primary care paramedic, which would be a BLS EMT type position in the States. Then we have an advanced care paramedic, which would be similar to a paramedic in the States, EMTP or what have you and then we have a critical care paramedic uh, and in my case I was a critical care flight paramedic so all of those levels of paramedicine actually can have a flight component to it which means you could be uh, a primary care paramedic who works in a flight environment you can be advanced care paramedic who works in a flight environment or you can be a critical care paramedic who works in a flight paramedic which really means you work in an air ambulance environment and need to understand the effects on physiology with aeromedicine. Uh, so a critical care flight paramedic can basically do everything below them in the scope of practice. You can work land, air, primary care, advanced care, you know, critical care, uh, all levels. Mm -hmm. So when I said I worked in, you know, when you said you worked in, you know, a few different uh, service models or all types of EMS services. What I meant by that statement in my bio is that I've worked in private EMS service models. I've worked in hospital-based EMS service models. I've worked in municipality-based models, and I've worked in provincial-based models, which are the kind of major types of models in, uh, in Canada. And I've worked in the land and air sector. And, you know, Bandage 1 was, uh, was a rotary wing aircraft base in Toronto, the busiest uh, critical care flight paramedic program. And our model in Canada, or at least in Ontario, where I worked in Toronto, was a two critical care flight paramedic model. So while some Mercy flight or, you know, air ambulance systems have a physician nurse model or a nurse paramedic model, our model was a twin critical care flight paramedic model. So we didn't have a nurse or uh, a physician on board. So we managed everything about the patient, the Swangans catheters, the intraortic balloon pumps, the ventilators, everything that the patient was on, we managed that situation. So it was really meant for transportation of ICU patients from ICU to ICU. You know, from a smaller community hospital who might be, you know, filling up their ICU and they need a tertiary care center. But it was certainly also used for, you know, emergency room patients who require an ICU. So you might be at a smaller hospital, came into the emergency department, and you need a bigger hospital's ICU to support you kind of long term. Uh, certainly trauma would be a good example where you need to get to a trauma center for not only the ICU, but the surgical intervention. And certainly our rotary wings also did scene calls. Although they were never originally initiated for scene calls, they quickly started to adapt to be able to do that. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned is that I work for the Hamilton Health Sciences Base Hospital Program. So my responsibility there as, uh, as a paramedic was to oversee paramedic education and certification. So we had annual certification requirements that are managed through our base hospital because uh, our base hospital system in the Ontario model uh, allowed a paramedic to practice on a physician's license. So I worked at the direction of a physician to educate and certify our paramedics annually. And mm -hmm. you do that through the base hospital program. And part of that was also uh, to run our research program, which was part of the Rock Initiative. I'm not too sure you're familiar with the Rock Research. A big research outcome consortium is what Rock stands for. 
and that was in partnership with Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. Okay, now good. So, so you've had a breadth of uh, public-private, and uh, like I said, the provincial and everything. So it's that uh, certainly helps prepare you moving up. Can you speak? You you mentioned that um, not there's not many fire-based EMS models in Canada, but can you speak a little bit since you have had the opportunity to work for both? to the advantages or disadvantages of fire-based EMS models versus these third service or, or separate service models? Yeah, so the third service is typically, you know, run by a municipality, just like a municipal fire department. So, um, you know, I guess my perspective is biased. I started in EMS and then was recruited to get into a fire service. Uh, so I started in Kitchener Fire Department and uh, started as a firefighter in a standalone fire department. So they did not provide EMS, but they were about to enter a tiered response agreement to go out to do tiered response calls where fire, police, and EMS would go to the call. Typically, fire would get there first, even though police should get there statistically before we did. And we would provide initial you know, uh, interventions for the patients. A lot of this was in order to get kind of defibrillation to the scene quickly. So they relied on the way fire services were built in a community that they had very quick initial response times to get that defibrillator there. And then when EMS would arrive, sometimes they had ALS, sometimes they would be have a BLS provider. But this was really part of the ALS expansion program in Ontario where they were trying to get fire departments to provide that kind of initial treatment and then get advanced care paramedics to provide that ALS intervention. So while I went through my career as a firefighter and I worked my way up through the ranks in Kitchener, became a captain, um, and then eventually moved on to Winnipeg, which is the blended service model I'll get to in a few minutes, uh, I continued to work with the permission of both my employers on my days off in EMS. So, you know, we work four days a week, four days off, four nights, four days off on the fire department. And on my four days off, typically I'd work three 12-hour shifts in EMS, which was full-time. So I worked full-time fire, full-time EMS, and both seen, you know, no problems with me managing that workload, uh, provided I showed up for work every day. Yeah. Uh, so there was value in that for the fire department in that I basically ran all of our medical training programs with a cadre of instructors in this new tiered response world that they were in. So they've seen a lot of value in me staying clinically active as a paramedic. But eventually I got to the point after, you know, 15 or 20 some odd years of saying, I can't work two full-time jobs anymore. It's just too much. So right. that eventually, and I had a hard time, you know, saying, or, you know, people would ask me all the time, what do you like most? Do you like being a paramedic? Do you like being a firefighter? And, and I said, well, sometimes it's like apples and oranges. Some of the calls we go to together, but other jobs are totally, you know, other calls are totally different. So a fire call, being in a fire as a captain or a firefighter is totally different than doing an ICU to ICU transport as a paramedic. And I like them both. So how did I stay in touch with both of those passions? And eventually I got recruited to go to Winnipeg as an assistant chief of a fire-based EMS model, or I wouldn't call it fire-based, I would call it an amalgamated service delivery model. So they took a fire service and an EMS service and amalgamated them together. And in the States, it would be called the fire-based EMS model. But uh, that service had advanced life support, almost critical care uh, capabilities as an organization, and also a very robust fire department. And when I went there, I was the assistant chief of operations, and my responsibility was to manage all of uh, frontline operations for fire, EMS, and arson strike force, which was 966 firefighters, 250 paramedics, and supervisors and a 12 person arson strike force. So I was very involved in the operation of fire and EMS. It was a great fit for me. And then eventually I became the deputy chief in charge of training of both firefighters and paramedics uh, amongst other responsibilities. So it was really an opportunity for me to keep my hands in both of those skill sets. 
Um, but one of the things I personally seen in that model, and one of the responsibilities I had was resource management. So getting the right resource to the right call at the right time. And we had a, and that was through our dispatch center using technology to do that because we had a joint fire EMS dispatch center. Uh, the challenge that we had was we had a very complicated model. So we had fire trucks with primary care paramedics or BLS uh, care on it. We had ambulances that had primary care or intermediate care or advanced care uh, and transport capabilities. And we had supervisors who drove around who were kind of above an advanced care or ALS kind of almost critical care, but they couldn't transport. So we needed the ability to figure out whether or not this call needed a fire, res fire first responder to get there to, to stop the clock get the defibrillator on the patient or you know deal with an airway problem or uh, a trauma gross bleed problem or whatever the issue is we need to get somebody there quickly fire could typically get there first and then the question is okay if you had a fire resource there and they had a paramedic on their truck as one of their crew members what transport platform do you need do you need a transport platform with a bls provider or an als provider uh, so the CAD would the computer aided dispatch system in our dispatch center would pick the right ambulance and send them to the call and then we needed to say do they need a supervisor which was our kind of almost critical care type medical provider to provide additional uh, assistance on that call so that was typically pediatric calls that we would send them to and some kind of patients with long-term care issues with diabetes or uh, something like that so, you know, it allowed me to really critically look at who we were sending to calls and make evidence-based decisions based on kind of my past practice in the base hospital. And, uh, and as a clinical provider at the critical care level, you could critically analyze the call. And we had our own medical director, so I was able to work closely with our medical director to make sure we were sending the right resource to the right call at the right time. And certainly, you know, I had personally experienced this when my son was involved in an incident where he was at the wrong place at the wrong time and he got jumped and stabbed by a bunch of individuals. And, you know, the system worked perfectly, absolutely perfectly. And I am 100% confident that had he had that situation happen in almost any other community, he would not be with us today. The police were on scene in under two minutes, minutes from the 911 call. Our BLS uh, paramedic on our fire truck was there within three minutes. So while the police took care of the scene for safety, our parent, we had a fire crew on scene with a paramedic who did critical in interventions with airway and bleeding. And then our advanced care paramedic transport platform showed up three to four minutes after our fire crews and our supervisors showed up immediately on their heels with that critical care level. They were was transferred to the trauma center on the table in the trauma center in the golden hour and is here with us today. So, you know, it's a perfect example of how the system worked uh, and, you know, allowed fire to add more capacity for EMS. And a lot of times our system would send out a fire unit with a paramedic on board and deal with the call in its entirety. They would go do a treatment, no transport, and we wouldn't even have to send a transport platform to that call. Sometimes a supervisor, but not necessarily a transport platform. Well, it's, it's great to end that discussion with a positive, and I'm glad uh, from a personal level that that uh, has worked out for you. I've, I've been on the receiving end of, of that as well with my own family, so I know how important that is. You mentioned that you worked for the city of uh, Kitchener, um, Winnipeg. Uh, you also worked for Chatham-Kent uh, and now Halifax. As you climbed through the ladder uh, or climbed up the ladder, not through it, as you climbed up the ladder through your career, what were key leadership tenets that uh, resonated the most with you? And, and how did you hone your leadership style as time went on? Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. And, uh, you know, some of it's just being at the right place at the right time, I think. Um, 
you know, I had mentors over my career, like many other people do. And, you know, some people who I worked with were people who I would want to model my behavior at. And some were people I would say, I don't want to be like that. Right. Sure. So I think one of the things that helped me in my transition through my career has honestly, you know, and I'm not saying this because I'm the president of the IFC, it's been, you know, my exposure to professional associations. So in the EMS world, there are similar positions, the paramedic chiefs of Canada, EMS chiefs of Canada, uh, it's been called a couple of different things over the years, paramedic chiefs of uh, whatever province I happen to be in, because I've worked in a bunch of different provinces over my career. So both state and national level and international with the IFC. Uh, so on the fire side, that would be the Canadian Association of Fire Chiefs and the International Association of Fire Chiefs. And not only, you know, for networking, but for professional development and finding mentors that you might not have access to. So certainly I would see presentations by, you know, when I was a junior officer, a captain, say, or maybe an assistant chief new in my kind of step into management outside of the bargaining group, um, I would see presentations by people that inspired me and want me to be a better person and a better leader. And maybe, you know, over the course of time, approach that person and ask if they mind if I reach out to them on occasion and develop uh, maybe a quasi-mentorship model where, you know, I could reach out and call a friend if I have a question. Uh, So I found that it was more than networking and getting together and having a coffee with somebody to talk about what's going on. It was, you know, an ability not only to learn personally, but to be inspired to be a better leader and a better individual. And as I went through that evolution, both with mentors at work and mentors in, you know, these associations or seminars or educational opportunities that I would attend, I learned that personally, the leaders that resonated with me were people who made decisions based on values and their values seemed to align with me. So I found that being a value-driven leader helped you, you know, develop relationships with your leadership team and uh, certainly labor uh, groups, i.e. unions. Um, and And I sincerely believe what I said earlier, you have a fire chief because you have a fire department. You don't have a fire department to serve a fire chief. It's it's an upside down model. So every day I come to work, I want to try to make things better for the firefighters who are out there trying to achieve a mission on behalf of council for our community and our visitors. And that doesn't mean that we always agree, right? Certainly that's difficult. Sometimes people on our management team don't always agree. But, you know, if you can be a value-based leader and your values resonate with your workers and your leadership team and certainly council and and your union leadership, most often you can find a way through difficult situations by finding some place that both parties or both organizations can be comfortable with. Yeah. So you have a process if you don't agree to sort that out. So the relationship is more important than the issue is my point. So if we come to a situation where we don't agree with, you know, the union on any particular case, uh, there's a process to deal with that. So keep your conversations respectful, like we talked about earlier. Keep your, you know, values, you know, make your decisions based on your values. And if you can't come to an agreement, there is a process to deal with that maintain the relationship because at the end of it you're going to have to go back and talk about something else in the future right yeah yeah absolutely so you've you know you've come up through all those you're at the IFC um, you know heading heading up the group as as president and i imagine you never thought you'd be there but um, yeah so you're there though and i'd like you to if you could just spend a minute to share uh, a little bit about some of the recent programs and initiatives, Uh, anything you'd like to talk about here that IFC is involved with and and what uh, folks should expect to see coming. 
Oh, so great, uh, great question. Thanks for the opportunity to chat on this. Um, so if you got a chance to see my initial address, one of the things that you would have heard me say is you're absolutely right. I'd never planned on being in this position. I was originally asked by Chief Ludwig if I would consider uh, an appointment to the second vice president's position because there was a vacancy. So I never you know, developed a platform. I never planned to run for the position, probably partially because I was an international member, uh, but also, you know, because, you know, historically I felt there are people that might do that role better than I might be able to. But, you know, when I was asked to consider it by members of the board and ultimately uh, appointed by the president, I was certainly humbled to been approached and considered for the position which really meant i didn't have years of you know campaigning to and i didn't develop a platform to run on because i was not running in an election yeah um so what i had learned while i was on the board uh and this were in my comments to the board when i was appointed i had learned that every year on the board there is something the board had to deal with that was all consuming. So I felt it was appropriate to dedicate my efforts in a one year term to whatever the issue was of the day. And that issue right now continues to be COVID uh, and along with some other government advocacy stuff about next generation 911 and Z access and some of those things, sure. uh, some of our broadband communication challenges and getting first responders, uh, particularly firefighters and paramedics at the front of the line for PPE and stuff like that for COVID. So certainly that has been a large part of the focus, but the other commitment I had made was to be an ally for our equity groups. So, you know, the board has doubled down on this issue, unanimously supported uh, our desire as an organization to be an inclusive organization and representative of the communities for fire services to be representative of the communities they serve. So certainly we have some work to do on that front. You know, we still have non-inclusive language in some of our documents and policies and, you know, uh, bylaws. So certainly that'll be some of the work we do but it's a desire to move the ball down the field in our efforts for diversity and inclusion. So one of the things that we did initially right away as a result of that commitment was I appointed our second vice president, Chief Butler, to be the voice of our equity groups on the board. So him and I, along with uh, Chief Black, our first vice president, who's passionate about this as well, are working on behalf of the board to figure out what that looks like and to reach out to our equity groups and get their voice heard and figure out how organizationally we can do a better job to be a voice and an ally for our equity groups and uh, be representative of the communities we serve. So I'm not naive. This is not going to happen in one year. This is why I've drawn Chief Black and Chief Butler into the conversation. So we're all committed to this, as is the board. So I would say, in addition to that, uh, the other thing I would say is an example of some of the partnerships we've created. Certainly we have many partners who help us with funding and support our mission as far as supporting programs like our FESD program and our IDELP program. But, you know, one I would talk about is the partnership that the IFC has with the Propane Education and Research Council, where we're trying to expand awareness of critical information and issues related to propane training and enhance and prepare, uh, enhance and improve preparedness for hazmat response involving incidents with propane. So it's, you know, an example of how a partnership can be very focused but we also have partnerships where they want to partner with us because of what we're doing, whether that's on the DNI front or on uh, on an operational front, like I have in front of you. So we have many, many partners who want to partner with the IFC because of who we are and our brand recognition, 
and what we do every day with our front end uh, service delivery with our firefighters and paramedics in the communities across the globe. Yeah, good good stuff. And, you know, we could, like you said earlier about COVID and, and what the IFC is involved in, we could spend probably six different podcasts just talking about those activities. So I appreciate you encapsulating it and uh, recognizing uh, the, the one-year status of the individual roles. And uh, you've got a very diverse uh, slate of leadership in there right now that um, will keep those um, uh, we'll, we'll keep that momentum going in those directions. So that's that's great stuff. Before we wrap up, um, I read that you are, uh, and switching gears totally, that you're a, an avid sportsman, uh, lacrosse, hockey, equestrian activities, camping and boating. How do you compare the fire and emergency services with elite athletes and um, sports of competition? Are there any good leadership takeaways in that comparison for our listeners? Yeah, so, yeah, I certainly have had this conversation with many, many people. I think there are a lot of similarities between team sports uh, and elite athletes, uh, either on team sports or even elite athletes on individual sports. Um, You know, there's a saying that practice makes perfect. I don't subscribe to that saying. One of the things as a coach or as as an elite athlete, an elite athlete back when I could kind of do that kind of stuff. I'm getting old for it now, <laughs> uh, but uh, I would say perfect practice makes perfect. Yeah. So I would say the same applies in our world, uh, in leadership or, you know, in the front end service delivery. If you want to, you know, be perfect when it counts and do a great job, you need to practice to be perfect. And that requires perfect mm-hmm. practice. And you should constantly be working on your skills and your craft, whether that's leadership uh, and professional development at the leadership level or, you know, at the front end, you know, boots on the ground level. And you have formal leaders and informal leaders and all of our team players make a difference. So, you know, you can have, you know, to use, uh, you know, a hockey analogy, you know, and one of our most famous hockey players in Canada is Wayne Gretzky. So you might have even heard of that name. Mm-hmm. So you can't have a team full of Wayne Gretzkys, right? You need you need a goalie. You need defense players who are ready to kind of hold the blue line and make sure that that Wayne Gretzky on the other team doesn't get past the defense. You need somebody to go in and dig the puck out of the corner. That was not historically Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky would set up the play and set up in his office behind the net. So as great of a hockey player as Wayne Gretzky is, a team of Wayne Gretzky's will not be successful. You need diversity on your team and diversity in all aspects, right? Not just diversity in, you know, equity groups that we call them in Canada, uh, but diversity from life, right? You need people with skilled trades background, people with social worker backgrounds, people with a EMS background. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on. We have a recruit class with doctors in it right now, and chiropractors, paramedics, and uh, electricians, and plumbers, and they're also diverse in their equity groups. So that diversity, as a as an organization, allows us. To be successful if we are all the same we will all think the same and have the same skills so i think that diversity has many fronts and then your passion for the position and the organization's mission and their aspirations to be more in their vision than they are today and their values is ultimately what leads a team to be successful yeah Outstanding. I love the tagline out of that. The tagline for me out of that will be practice to be perfect. And it was interesting in that discussion. um, I just uh, recently wrote an article on diversifying yourself um, and talking about how we spend uh, uh, justifiably. We spend a lot of time talking about diversity in those equity groups. But how much time do individuals spend diversifying themselves? And that speaks to exactly what you were talking about. So I appreciate your perspective on that. Uh, Chief, if it's okay, we'll put a link to your inaugural video address in our show notes, if that's all right with you. 
that's great. And maybe if, if we have one more second, there's one more piece I would add to that. Sure. Yeah. What else would you like to add? Having coached at, you know, high competition levels, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about kind of house league levels or high levels, elite athletes, human nature is to want to do when we practice what we're inherently good at. So I'll give you an example. If you turn the players out on the ice in the morning at seven o'clock in the morning for a 7 a.m. practice for peewee players, whether they're house league players or AAA hockey players, and you give them 10 minutes to do whatever they want, what they will do is what they like to do. So if they have a great slap shot, they'll take slap shots. If they have a great wrist shot, they'll take wrist shots. If they're great skaters, they'll be doing skating circles. But the reality is we should be practicing on the things that we're not good at. <laughs> we have yeah. to force ourselves yeah. to practice those things that we're not inherently good at in order yeah. to become better at. And yeah, who wants to do who wants to do the things they're not good at? Who yeah, <laughs> great point. Right. Great, great, great point. And um, I think that, uh, you know, if, if I did the thing that I wanted to do all the time in the gym, it, it would just be arm day. And I, I can't do that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, know how that would turn out in the end, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Papa uh, showed uh, showed us that for a long time. So, uh, Chief, I appreciate it. That's all we have time for today. We've been talking with Chief Ken Steubing, president and board chair of the IFC and the fire chief of the Halifax Regional Fire and Emergency Services in Nova Scotia, Canada. Chief Steubing, thanks for joining us, and thanks to our listeners for staying with us. This is Mark Bayshore, Executive Editor for FireRescue1.com and FireChief.com. Have a great day on purpose. We'll talk with you next time on Side Alpha Podcast. Keep safe, stay smart, and take care.